0: Welcome to Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I am your host, Brittany, and welcome back to another episode on our series on reading and literacy through the social justice lens. Uh, Last week, we talked to Oliver James. That was a really great interview, just really talking about the experience of being an adult learning how to read. And this episode, I kind of want to explore what the experience of learning with how to read is for children. Like I mentioned before, oftentimes we think about learning to read and the image in our head we have is children. Um, and there's been a lot of shifts and changes in how we teach reading. So today I just want to do a bit more of a deep dive on how do we teach reading from a systemic level and what is the history of teaching to read? What does that looked like within the scope of the United States? Um, And then I want to investigate a little bit about the developmentally appropriate practices in reading and kind of just explore what can we do uh, moving forward uh, to just ensure that the outcomes are better for students, um, long-term effects of that as well. One of my earliest memories in school was that experience in second grade, I just was really struggling this concept of reading for a, a number of different reasons. And I remember being in the room during parent-teacher conferences and you know, my mom was a single mother, so we had to be there Um, I know best practices now are, you know, you don't want the child in the room while you're talking about them in that way, but I had to be there. So I I do remember being in the room during this parent teacher conference and hearing the kind of the words floating around about how I was daydreaming a lot. And I wasn't seem to be trying with reading. I wasn't at the same level as my peers with reading. And I think the suggestion was to hold me back in second grade until I Got the concept of reading before moving forward, but I don't think my mom was down with that idea. And, you know, I was still, you know, pushed forward to the third grade. And I really consider myself very lucky in that regard because my third grade teacher was absolutely incredible. She really did a lot to get me up to that point of reading where my peers were. She really helped me find books that I was interested in. Uh, really helped me find a love for reading that I just didn't have before. And even today, I am an avid reader, I will find a book and just get really immersed in it. Um, I can read all different kinds of things from, you know, really academic text to just reading for fun, and find enjoyment in both types of those readings. So I'm still a very big avid reader today. And I know that my story is, you know, really lucky and not a lot of people had that opportunity. And I I truly can't imagine where I would be in life if I didn't have just that one teacher who really took the time to work with me as an individual and find ways for me to discover reading and discover my love for reading. And sometimes I think back to that and I think about, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I was, I was struggling to read at that time. I had been to a couple of different schools even before uh, the second grade. So I started school in California and we went to school in you know Maryland and we finally got to school in Virginia. And so all of those different moves, uh, I went to several different schools, even in California before we moved to the East coast and thinking about all of those different shifts, all of the different, um, you know, life things that were going on in my young little life and all the other concerns that I had. And, you know, it makes sense, you know, hearing hearing that I was daydreaming a lot and looking back on my those early years, it makes sense why I was daydreaming a lot. It, it just makes sense why I just wasn't fully present in school and in class. But also it makes me think about how are we teaching students to read And are we doing it in a way that is developmentally appropriate for a majority of students, right? So I want to first kind of pick apart the history of learning to read within the United States, particularly, Um, you know, before, you know, the kind of 1800s. And before that, reading wasn't very common. It wasn't something that people really needed to have a firm grasp on uh, in their everyday life. So it just wasn't something that was really explicitly taught to a majority of people. However, in the 1800s, there started to be this shift in understanding that maybe everyday people do need to have a grasp on reading, and that's going to be really important for their day-to-day lives. And so we started teaching that in schools. And the kind of inception of teaching students to read, you know, prior to that, people, children were really just taught to read, you know, the Bible, read and recite, read and recite the Bible. And that's really all you'll, you'll ever really need to read and recite. Um, And then, you know, as time went on, there were some shifts of like, I think people need to learn how to actually read and how to read other things and not just memorize this one text. Um, And so when we started teaching to read, there was this kind of approach that was very like phonics based so when I say phonics, that is connecting the letters themselves with the actual sounds. So, you know, if I'm looking at the word cat, I'm going to sound it all out using, you know, the phonics approach as cat, k- right? So then connecting all those to to make that word, right? And so that approach didn't actually have students looking at whole words for the first, you know, part of their their reading journey, right? It was just, let's look at letters, what sounds do they make? And then we can kind of talk about how we can conjoin those together. Um, So that through the 1800s, 1700s and 1800s, that was kind of the primary way that reading was taught in schools. Um, It's a very phonics based approach. There was a bit of a shift in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, you know, up until like 1930s, there was kind of this big shift from phonics to this kind of more whole word approach Um, similar to what we would call today, like sight words. So looking at the entire word and just kind of memorizing what that would look like. So a teacher might hold up, you know, a picture of a house and have the word house on it, right? Hopefully there'd be that connection of like there would be an image. Sometimes there wouldn't be, but sometimes you'd have the image of a house and then you'd have the word next to it. And then students were supposed to just memorize what those symbols all together looked like and that those symbols all together meant the word house um and so there wasn't really ever um in those kind of beginning stages there wasn't really a emphasis on teaching phonics it was very um here's the word learn the word It was very rote memorization so i'm just going to memorize these words and you know go on from there and in some cases phonics would be taught like later on so after you've learned a lot of these words then you might go back and learn some phonics but it had shifted from that phonics approach to this whole word approach. So by the 1930s, phonics had pretty much been completely abandoned. Um, It was just, you know, whole word approach and no one was really doing phonics based approaches anymore. Up until about the 1970s when phonics starts making its return um, back into the reading sphere. Um, When we look at, the neuroscience of reading, we look at how the human brain isn't really geared towards written language, right? So the way that we typically learn to communicate is very verbal. Our brains are geared towards that verbal type of communication rather than, um, you know, reading and writing type of communication. And so that's really important when we start talking about teaching to read. And so Phonics, we know from that science, you know, neuroscience of how our brains develop, phonics is going to be the most effective way to teach that. It's going to be connecting. What are these words? What are these words and these symbols look like? What do they mean? How do you say them? And then connecting those um, two words. Uh, so the whole word approach, you know, when we look at the science of it, it was more ineffective to teach it that way than to start with the phonics and then go into how do you say the whole word? Um so the 1970s, we start seeing a little bit more of a push towards phonics coming back, but it doesn't actually gain in popularity until well into the, to the 2000s, when we have a little bit more research coming out that's, you know, really po- pointing the finger saying this is not an effective way to teach reading. Um, using phonics is going to be a more effective way to get students to read. That's kind of a short history of how reading kind of came to be. There's still a lot of back and forth happening with teaching. And we do have the science pretty solid that tells us that it's going to be phonics, but there is this, a bit of an implementation gap in between how we're actually teaching the phonics and how we're actually teaching that. So you still see things like sight words in kindergartens today, uh, this very whole word approach. There's not really a uniform way at the moment that reading is being taught to students. And that sort of becomes part of one of the many problems that we see with learning to read. So how does reading and literacy connect with social justice? Well, we know that the core pillars and the core ideas of social justice is that people can live lives full of dignity in which they can thrive. And again, that's going to look different for every individual, but that's a general idea, right? If I can condense it into one sentence, that's the general idea of social justice. So when we're looking at reading levels and reading scores and who is most impacted by this, we're looking at students with disabilities. We're looking at black, black and brown students specifically, um, and students within poverty. Students in poverty tend to have lower levels of reading scores. In addition to that, they also tend to have lower access to supports, um, that that means like tutors, that means, you know, additional help outside of the school to pick up and learn reading. And again, we know that if students are not at reading level by third or fourth grade, then they're kind of set up for failure at that point, they're going to have a harder time catching up with their peers if they're not at reading level by that le- by that time. So we see middle school students and high school students and even college students who struggle with reading and comprehension and struggle with these skills and when we look at that again we take that social justice lens and it helps us to take a step back a little bit right because if our lens is really narrow we're looking at people who struggle with reading and we're looking at it as oh that's a you problem or oh your parents just didn't read to you enough or you just weren't paying attention in school then we look at that science of reading we kind of go back to what the neuroscience of reading actually tells us right There's this idea that if you just read to kids a lot and really expose them to reading, that then when it comes time to teaching them to read, that it'll go just like that. It'll be super easy, super fast. They've already got it. They've already laid the foundation for it. But the science tells us that's not actually the case. Yes, it's still important to read with your child and read to young children and expose them to print concepts. But the purpose of that is not so that they will then know how to read because of it. The purpose of that is to have exposure to print concepts, to talk about narrations and stories and expose them to other stories, to uh, get them excited about reading. Because a big component of reading, it's not an easy task. It's not super easy to learn how to read. Again, you're training your brain to do something that it is not really naturally geared to know how to do. So you're training your brain to do a whole completely new series of tasks. right? And that's really difficult and that can be really hard for students. Some students pick it up really fast. It, the data tells us that about 5 to 10% of students will learn how to read without really any very specific instruction, right? And that's a very small percentage of students who will do that, right? Those are those students you might read to a little bit, exposing the print concepts. They're really excited about it without really specific instruction, they will probably pick up learning how to read eventually. About 35% of students will learn how to read regardless of the type of instruction. So whether you're doing specifically whole word or you're doing specifically phonics, 35% of students will learn how to read regardless of how you're teaching them. We know that about 40 to 45% of students will struggle learning how to read without very specific instruction. that's a big chunk of students. That's that's, a, that's almost 50% of the students that without very specific instruction, they're going to struggle with reading. And so this idea, again, that just exposing students to print concepts is enough to get them to learn how to read isn't effective, right? And so looking again at that data and knowing how important it is to learn the letters and how the letters sound and how the letter sounds together is really important, not just as rote memorization that we do, um, you know, in kindergarten and in sight words and things like that. So it is a social justice issue when we consider that reading levels contribute to massive amounts of inequity, right? Again, if you are functionally illiterate and you have not con- you have not conquered this idea of reading, you never caught up to your peers. That's going to Really impact your access to health care, mental health care, job opportunities. It's going to really impact where you're able to go in life. Are you able to even leave the, the place in which you were born and grew up? Are you able to explore other places? Are you able to go to college? Are you able to advance in your career? It's really going to impact a lot of these aspects of your life. It's going to impact the family that you have after that as well. And in this disparity that happens between literacy rates right, in long-term outcomes. When we look at the data of individuals who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated, we do see that they tend to have lower levels of reading and comprehension. So we're looking at this in that social justice component and that social justice lens, we're looking at why does this happen and what could we be doing to provide people with the necessary tools for them to thrive and be successful in their lives? And... This is a multi-tiered issue, so it's not just parenting that is the issue, and it's not just the education system that is the issue, and it's not just policy as the issue. It's everything kind of working in tandem together, right? And that's what we're looking at. That's, that's sort of the issue that we're having here. So how are we teaching students to read in the current climate, right? So we know there's been some back and forth between you know, the science and exactly how are we teaching students, but what what is the standard right now? And so in the United States, we have the common core state standards. Um, and so that's been a force to kind of unify states together and how we are teaching reading and um, other domains within education. And common core tends to be a little bit more on the very structured approach to learning literacy today the common core state standards have aligned more with the structured alignment of teaching to read and so that is very systemic and very explicit way of teaching reading Um, it looks at phonics which is of course those words to sounds uh phonemes which is like distinct units of sound it looks at um comprehension fluency there's all these different elements all together make up this structured approach to reading. And that is this that is the kind of direction that the common core standards have taken reading. Um, it's can be in some ways told to be kill and drill. So just we're going to really learn these sounds and it gets, it's very, very structured, very, very explicit, uh, which we do see from the science of it is a very effective way of teaching, but some have criticized it in that it, kind of kills the joy of, of reading, um, which is also a very important aspect of that. Another thing that we look at is the developmentally appropriateness of when we're teaching students to read. It's come kind of pretty common that with a lot of the standards and a lot of our expectations on students, the more expectations that we have, so we see that third grade is pretty much pretty much become fourth grade, second grade become third grade. First grade becomes second grade and kindergartens become first grade and preschools now become kindergarten. And that proposes a couple of different issues, right? So when we look at early childhood, which goes all the way up until age eight, which is about third grade, we do need to be looking at the developmental ways in which we are still teaching students information. Uh, We know that it's very effective in early childhood, especially with preschool. There's been a, a big shift into having more play-based preschools rather than very structured and very academic. We see that there's a better long-term outcomes for students who are in play-based programs rather than in these highly structured academic kind of rigorous and rigid academic programs. So we do see that there's got benefit of that But the more that these standards keep getting pushed younger and younger and younger and then we also look at is kindergarten is it developmentally appropriate to be teaching kindergartners to read things is that where their brains are actually are their brains actually ready for this and there's currently no data to suggest that teaching students to read in kindergarten makes them more prepared than teaching them to read in the first grade we just don't have the data to support that And we know that giving students more play-based models and giving students that ability to explore their surroundings and focus on social emotional development, we know that that does impact, have a better impact on long-term academic success, success than this kind of kill and drill method. In early childhood, we know that development is not quite super linear and that it doesn't happen the exact same for every student right so looking at even some things about like learning to walk some kids are going to learn to walk at about nine months old and some kids won't learn how to walk until about 15 months old and in development that's a completely normal range you can have two kids coming from the same exact household one might learn how to walk at 10 months and one might learn how to walk at 12 or 13 months and that is completely normal developmental range for those types of things Similarly, you'll have some students who are ready for reading and reading concepts as early as three or four years old. And you'll have some students who won't learn how to read until way later. And that is a bit of a developmental, it's a, developmentally, it's very normal. You can have kids who do it super early and you can have kids who do it closer to about third or fourth grade. It's a normal developmental range for students to be in. But when our expectation is that all students will learn how to read by the end of kindergarten, we're doing a great disservice to students because not all students developmentally are ready for that. And so that's kind of pushing them past where they're developmentally ready. That goes back to the common core state standards. When we look at the committees that were developing these things, no one that was on that committee had a background in early childhood or even first through third grade teaching. So it makes sense then that it's not quite developmentally appropriate when we look at it from their development. And so we know that many students aren't ready to start reading in kindergarten. That's not where they are developmentally. Most children aren't developmentally ready to learn how to read within kindergarten, but the common core standards dictate that by the end of first Of kindergarten they should be on their way to emergent reading which is in some ways really just absurd (laughs) just looking at that it's really absurd because they're just they're not ready and that doesn't mean that we don't expose them to it that doesn't mean that we don't help them get there but at this stage in their kind of really emergent reading journey our job should be getting them excited about reading Should be getting them excited about stories. Should be getting them excited about letters and sounds. That should be our job. We shouldn't be taking the joy out of reading at such an early age purely because they're just not ready for it. And when I think back to those early memories of me in elementary school and my second grade teacher and my third grade creep teacher, and I remember the shame that I felt because I wasn't reading at the same level as my peers, feeling that there was something wrong with me that I couldn't do that. you know. And many parents feel that same shame of, what did I do wrong that my st- student is having a hard time learning how to read when it might just be developmentally, they're just not there yet. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that student. It just means that the, their development is where it is. We can't necessarily always rush where our development is. So what do we do? As I mentioned, this is an issue that is pretty multifaceted. There's a lot of different aspects to it that are important for consideration. It's not just the teacher's fault that reading scores have been steadily declining over the years. It's not just the parent's fault. It's not just the student's fault. There's so many aspects of it that are important for us to be considering when we're talking about increasing access to literacy for students. You know, we need to look at our teacher preparation programs. Are we teaching the science of reading to students? Are we requiring this um, professional development for current teachers to learn about how students learn how to read and how we can best be supportive? Another aspect on top of that is, what are the standards that we are pushing forward within education Again, we can't have standards that are going out that are uh, affecting all these different levels of education and there not be someone who has an early childhood background on that panel, not have someone who has an experience teaching first, third, kindergarten, and not have them on that team, right? This is where it comes into play that all aspects of teachers and teaching needs to be respected and needs to have a seat at the table. Right. Because I can assure you that if there was an early childhood education professional in that room, they would have said, hey, this might not be developmentally appropriate for all students at this level. Let's let's think about this a little bit. Let's think about shifting this a little bit more. We're looking at policies that were going in place, we're looking at laws that are going into place that are affecting education. And most importantly, we're looking at our our parent education as well. Right? So how can Parents at home best support their students in their reading journey. There's a lot of different aspects that we can look at, but we do know that at the end of the day, the people who are getting hurt the most are the students. Their sense of well-being, their overall happiness. We're seeing more mental health struggles, long-term impacts of literacy and learning how to read for students. So what can we do? We can look at organizations that are pushing for Um, better standards and qualities in education. We can attend our school board meetings and ask them these really, really important questions about what are we doing about these issues. We can work with other parents in the community and other stakeholders in the community to really bring forth a lot of really lasting and changing action. And I'll link some of those um, nonprofits and organizations in the description box uh, so you can explore if you're interested in that. Thank you for tuning into Conscious Pathways. Please like, follow, and subscribe Conscious Pathways wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like or leave a rating or review. It really does help the podcast to grow and to reach more listeners just like you. And until next time, wherever you are on your conscious journey, lead with kindness and courage. I'll see you next time for more transformative conversations in education.